0: One of the great promises in Scripture is found in James chapter 4 when it says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, it says. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let's pray together. Father, we come near to You today as if there's any place that You are not. You are omnipresent, God. You are everywhere, so how is it that sometimes we can feel so distant from You? Your Word says our sins have separated us from You. And like Isaiah, we came to church today and maybe we didn't expect to encounter You. Sing some songs, listen to somebody talk, Pray some prayers, give a gift, and go home. But God, our prayer is every time we come in this place that you would come near to us. And that's frightening even to say. Because the more we see of how holy, holy, holy you are, we sense that we are unholy, unholy, unholy. But we know this, God, that apart from you, there is no life. Without you, our lives are never going to make sense. We're not just going to try harder to do better and figure it all out on our own somehow. We pray that we would not just live somehow, but triumphantly connected to you. You made us, Lord. You redeem us. You're the only one who can. So we ask you, Lord, that when we leave here today, that we would not be the same. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks to our worship team, to uh, Sunlight and Heartlight Choirs for leading us in worship. Good work, good, good ministry. It's been a beautiful morning. If you could change one thing about your life, what would it be? And what's your plan to change that Across my email this week, a website that I sometimes go to called Pathéos. I'm always interested in what they send to me. A guy named Scott McKnight is a theologian with them. So I open it up this time, and it's an advertisement, and this is what it says. Activate positive change. And then the next line shocked me. It says, talk to a psychic. What? Activate positive change by, by doing what? By talking to a psychic. I'm thinking, well, that's, that's not going to work for me. But I wonder if we actually believe that people change. In fact, every other week as I'm reciting the fighter verses with my running partner, we've been working on these for three and a half years on this five-year plan. And we always come to this 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. You know those verses, listen, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep but we will all be changed. And I just always stop when I say that. And then the the next verse says, uh, in a flash, and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. So dead people are going to live. And then it says, and we will be changed. And there's something in my heart, your heart too, that wants to believe there is change. I'm reading through the... New King James Version this year, and I got to Job 14.14, and it it says, um, I'm waiting for my change to come. So is that what you're waiting for? John Mayer sings, uh, waiting for the world to change. I think uh, Romans chapter 8 says, the world's waiting for us to change. So how how do we change? I mean, there are all kinds of fads and things we can enroll in, things we can eat or not eat or do or not do, exercises we can take up, and this is going to be the thing that finally changes us. Years ago, Chuck Swindoll told a a story of an Amish family that went to the mall for the very first time. Imagine that if you'd never been to a mall and you walk in for the first time and the, the mom and the daughter go one way, the dad and... The sun are walking by and they're fascinated by these metal doors, shiny metal doors that close and open. And there's a little room inside. And there are lights up above. And they're just standing there staring at it. And the son says, What is that? And the dad says, I have no idea. About that time, a lady with a walker comes through. She walks into that little room. The doors close. They watch the lights go up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then the lights come down. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. The doors open, and out walks a vivacious twenty-four-year-old young woman. And the dad quietly says to his son, Junior, go get your mother. <laughs> well, he thought maybe. Look, I've tried the look. And 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 by the way, if Mrs. Swindall told that story, she would say. And the mother was on the other side of the other bank of elevators, and said. Go get your father. But the truth is, elevators don't do that, do they? I mean, the elevators, we ride them all the time. There's some etiquette when you walk in. There are things you're supposed to do. Have ever walked into an elevator and, and you just stand facing the back while everybody's facing that way? That's kind of creepy, you know? Um, or or you you get on my music minister every time we would go visit the hospitals in Austin we would get in an elevator like St. Luke's you know the really fast ones and we would get in and we're riding the elevator and he would just sort of say man I hope this thing doesn't fall again (laughs) and there'd be like a dramatic pause and I would go no they change that cable every time it breaks it's no problem people were glad for us to get off the elevator what's your strategy for change what really changes people 's lives? Can we really be changed on this transfiguration sunday there 's a beautiful story of not only transfiguration but transformation that begins in the lives of god 's people. Can I show you in god 's word Matthew chapter seventeen verses one through eight let 's hear the word of the Lord together. Jesus is in this uh, relationship of discipleship with 12 that he has said to them follow me he's asked them to come after him and to follow him and they have they're coming near to Jesus and he's coming near to them and sometimes they get it like Peter who says you're the Messiah you're the Christ the son of the living God he gets it and then in the next minute he says to Jesus stop talking about crucifixion and Jesus says get behind me Satan so for Peter it's kind of a roller coaster ride to transformation maybe for you too Let's stand together and hear the word of the Lord. Matthew 17, verse 1. You know this story. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, He said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please, please be seated. You remember that Moses and Elijah had their own encounters with God on mountaintops. We're more familiar with Moses at Sinai. And there on top of the mountain, he encounters the glory of God. Remember the glory cloud that led the children of Israel? It was a a pillar of fire at night a pillar of cloud by day, and this glory cloud rests on the mountain. And Moses has very specific instructions. If people get too close, they could die if they get too close to this mountain. So keep the people at a distance because people can't bear the weight, apparently, of God's glory. Remember, Elijah, on another occasion, runs to the mountain of God because he wants to die. And he gets there and he sees an earthquake and there's wind and fire and he has all this and then there's a still small voice and he encounters the glory of God. But the rule, if you remember in the Old Testament, was if you encounter the glory of God, you couldn't do that and Live. And so the people had a sort of holy fear of God. But Moses and Elijah were the ones there. So, what does this story mean? In the middle of this, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Some of you will not die before you see the kingdom of God come in power. Six days later, they go up on the mountain, these three, Peter, James, and John. Why those? Three, the other time we see them singled out is in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before Christ is crucified. Maybe they needed more help than the others. Or maybe... God is trying to transform them because John and James are sons of thunder after all who wanted to uh, incinerate a Samaritan village one time because the people rejected Jesus and Jesus has to tell them no. And Peter's roller coaster ride is well documented in the Gospel of Mark and in the Scriptures. And Jesus takes them with Him up on the mountain and there in this place, they see the glory of God. Remember the glory in the Old Testament, not only on that mountain, but it rests on the tabernacle uh, Isaiah, or, or in Exodus chapter 40 and then we see in Isaiah chapter 6 that Sarah read for us uh, Isaiah encounters the glory of God and the, and the, uh, the robe, uh, the, 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 the trim of his robe filled, the train of his robe fills the temple. We know that the, the glory rests on the tabernacle and when Solomon builds the temple the glory of God comes down in the holy of holies. But remember in Ezekiel There comes a point in chapter 10, verse 18, when the glory cloud lifts and leaves. Leaves the temple behind. Eleven twenty-three. it just goes away. And and the glory cloud represents the presence of God. So Jesus is on the mountain, and He's shining bright. And they see Jesus as He really is. And then Peter starts talking. (laughs) Because this is Peter's default mode. You know anybody like Peter? He doesn't have to have something to say he just has to say something Lord this is this is so beautiful he says we could build little tabernacles here for one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah this would be great and right then God interrupts him this is my hope every time we worship together that God would just interrupt our plans and God shows up and God speaks up and says this is my son and I love Him, and I'm really pleased with Him. For once in your life, Peter, listen to Him. There are times to talk. There are times to listen. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon said years ago about this experience, it is better to hear the voice of the Son of God than than to see saints or to build tabernacles. Tabernacles. I wonder if Jesus came to church on a Sunday morning, how would that disrupt what we do? What if we saw him As he really is. John will have another glimpse of him in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. He sees Jesus and his eyes are like fire and there's this holy glow and his hair is white. It's not the uh, picture of Jesus that was on my children's living Bible when I was a kid growing up. It's a kind of frightening picture of Jesus and he sees him. And what happens in the Bible when people really encounter God is they fall on their faces almost inevitable. even if they just see an angel, it just totally disrupts their whole worldview because they are so amazingly amazed and astonished at the presence of God. And maybe the only hope for our transformation is that we would look and see Jesus as He really is. And when we look at Him, that as the glory cloud speaks and says, listen, we would listen to what Jesus says long enough... That we would begin to learn about Him. And if we learned about Him, we might begin to live as He lived. It's only What if the only chance we have to grow as disciples, to be conformed to the image of God's Son, to become changed, is that we actually see Jesus as He really is. Wayne Watson, in one of his songs years ago, dared to ask the question, Would I know You now, Jesus, if You walked into the room? Would I know You? What would I do if I saw you we were having worship planning for this service this week we always have it in the same place i always sit in the same chair randy sits to my left carla sits across from me everybody's got their their space joshua's to my right we always sit in that same room and we were starting to plan for this service and i just said so let's go and they said okay let's go and i said no really let's go and we all just stood up and they 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 were thinking he's crazy where are we going and they just followed me and we walked right up there to the top We went up to a high place like Jesus and His disciples. And then I asked them, who sits up here? Why do they come to this church? Why will they be here this Sunday? And I read this passage to them and I said, what in these verses do people have to hear to live another week? What in these verses could people hear that would actually change the way they think about God, the way they relate to their families, the way they relate to their neighbors and their friends, the way they see our city. what in these verses and it occurred to me unless and until we see Jesus when we worship, and I love verse eight when they finally lift their eyes, Luke tells us that you know peter 's talking crazy because he 's sleepy, and uh, he doesn 't really know what to say, and I guess that 's true a lot, even in worship, that we sort of we don 't know what 's next, what do we do next, but then But then in verse 8 it says, when they lifted their eyes, all they saw was Jesus. And I wonder what it would be like to live life that way. That Jesus would be front and center. That we would fix our gaze on Him. Let our eyes look straight ahead. What would that be like? Wouldn't you like to know? So somehow in the transfiguration we realize that God sometimes we'll we'll pull back the curtain just a little bit. The curtain of Jesus' humanity is pulled back and for one second, just for a second, Peter, James, and John see that Jesus' divinity is real, that he's, he's uh, He's not somebody to be trifled with, that He is uniquely holy, that He is absolutely worthy. What would it be like to see Him like that I'm pretty sure that would change the way we think Annie Dillard had the audacity to say so if you saw God as he really is that that would that would really change a worship service she said outside the catacombs by the way that's where the Christians are buried in Rome she said they sufficiently are sensible of the conditions but I don't find Christians outside of that that they, the living Christians are not really aware of what's going on. Does anyone have the fogg- foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke when we, when we pray? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats, velvet hats to church. They should uh, issue crash helmets, she says. Ushers should give us life preservers and signal flares. Just imagine if you were walking in and they started handing those to you. Every if you walked in and you sat down on the pew and there was a seatbelt. What would you think? Would you say, oh, you know, here's what I know for sure. If we ever see God as he really is, then we never return to business as usual. It becomes transforming. It becomes a mind-boggling for us so that we realize, as N.T. Wright says, that when we encounter God as he really is, one thing we know for sure is he's not exactly as we imagine him to be. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst Christianity either means that or it means nothing it's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham a nonsense a bit of deceitful play acting and most of us are unwilling to live in either of those camps so we condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between oh don't let that happen it's either Completely true. And if it's completely true, then it changes everything. Or it's not true at all, and we need to go find something else to do with our time. But I'll tell you what it's not. It's not something that we can sort of dabble in and check into every once in a while. It's either life transforming or it's a waste of your time. But it's not something in between that. And I wonder which it is for us. Because I was reading through the Scriptures again this year just thinking about change, and I came... To Psalm 50 on the 50th day of the year recently I come to Psalm 50 I guess it was a week ago and I get to that Psalm and and he starts talking to the children of Israel and he says you 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 know you you find somebody who's stealing and you just join in with them you join in with the adulterers you use your mouth for evil you harness your tongue for deceit you sit and testify against your own brother you slander your own mother's son when you did these things and I kept silent you thought I was exactly like you Is that why we're not changed? Because we think God is like us. It's the Oswald Chambers quote I used in the early service last week when he says, are you drawing nearer to the holy God or are you becoming more comfortable with a God who says sin doesn't really matter that much anyway? So which is it? Is He holy, holy, holy? Because when Isaiah heard that in chapter 6, as Sarah read it, he said, I am coming undone. I am disintegrating. If He is who I think He is, who I see Him to be, then I am in a lot of trouble because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King and I, I either have to change the way I live or I can't live with this God because He is inestimably holy. It's good to see Him, to see Him, to look at Him, but also, He says, to listen to Him, to learn from Him. What's going on? What does Peter need to hear? Well, in the the previous passage, he recognizes who Jesus is just for a moment, but then he doesn't want Jesus to be crucified, and Jesus chastises him for that and says, I have to be crucified. You, You don't understand. And it's as if the Father is saying to him, if you're going to walk with Jesus, this is what you know. He's going to suffer. And He's going to walk with you through your suffering. And we have walked through suffering. I shared with my running partner yesterday, we had four funerals in the last week. We have three funerals this week. I went, I went to Babyland yesterday and we buried a baby. And I am going to tell you, this is the hardest thing I've had to do in 35 years as a pastor. Is to walk into that part of the cemetery right over there at Memorial Oaks and to walk through that with families and there is deep suffering and I remember that Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 8 if we share in his suffering we will also share in his glory and the message we want to hear is that we can just do whatever we want to do and life is always going to be good and there'll never be any problems but if we want to enter the glory cloud what we realize is that for Jesus to fulfill his father's purpose he had to endure the cross despising its shame and go all the way through the the crucifixion into the the resurrection and Peter says and he has called us to follow in his steps so what does that mean because some of you are walking right there in his steps right now in the crucible of suffering and what I want you to know is that the thorn room the thorn in the flesh the thorn room is a station on the way to the throne room and Peter and John figured that out John figures it out, so he later reflects on this experience in in his prologue, in the Gospel of John. He reflects on this experience and he, he says, but to as many as did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then right after that he says in verse 14, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Peter Peter talks about it too in 2 Peter chapter 1. He talks about it and he uh, expresses it and says we didn't make this stuff up because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, verse 17. He's talking about the transfiguration. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased and John was a son of thunder but he became the beloved disciple and Peter denies Jesus three times on the night of Jesus crucifixion but then he's the preacher at Pentecost do you believe people can really change So I had a guy on my my wrestling team when I was in middle school his name was Ray Phelps. he was from North Carolina he had a bit of an advantage um he was 16 years old in the eighth grade so he was a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger. he had a a goatee you know and he was the guy who brought the bad stuff on the bus and um, he was a tough guy and he lived just a little bit down from me in our apartment complex and and I just remember one day we were on the bus on the way to some wrestling tournament and I got put in the chair by him which was a little bit scary but I started talking to him about the Lord and and he listened to me, and he, he prayed, and he received Christ as his Savior. And the transformation of his life was just remarkable because he was the worst student in the eighth grade. But by the end of the year, they brought him up on stage to give him a history award. I was like, wow, Ray's become a, a good student. And Ray was profane and vain and 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 foul and and in lots of ways. But then, by the time we finished our tenth grade year, we had started having home Bible studies in my home, and he branched out and had one in his home. And he had all the kids in his little uh, uh, area there of his apartment, and they were all coming, and he was teaching them the Bible. And there was no no people would say, "What happened to Ray?" And the only right answer was Jesus. He encountered Jesus and that changed him. Yeah, Paul understood this. He's the only other one who uses the word metamorphosis, he used it in Romans chapter 12. Where, where he says, and don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. It's really a word of change from the inside out. So the word don't be conformed is a word that uses the word schema, which means you're outward. So you're trying to change who you are outwardly. And he says, don't try to be like the world outwardly, but be transformed from the inside out. It's kind of caterpillar to Butterfly. And if you didn't know and a scientist couldn't prove to you that a caterpillar became a butterfly, you would never believe as a monarch uh, sort of wafted by you that that used to be that. You would never believe that. And this is the kind of transformation that God is trying to work in our lives. It's, um, it's what the scientists call albedo. Albedo is um, the amount of luminescence reflected when a light hits something and for instance, Venus has the highest albedo. It reflects 65% of the sun's rays back uh, out, and that's why Venus is the brightest planet. Um, Pluto is close behind, about 0.49 to 0.66 at times. It, it'll uh, reflect, but it's, it's further out, and it's smaller, and they don't even call it a planet anymore. Um, but but it, it's like our sun, only 0.07%, but the goal of the Christian life, Paul says, is a 100% albedo. So you reflect perfectly back the same light. Here it is, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Do you know this verse? This is the other place the word metamorphosis is used. Only three times in the New Testament. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed. There it is, into His image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God's trying to make us look more like Jesus. We're skeptical, aren't we? We know ourselves. We know how hard it would be for somebody like us to become more like Jesus. We know that would be hard. I love the, the, the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, he has a, a poem called Kingfishers. I saw a kingfisher once. I was up the hill from the kilns, uh, C.S. Lewis's old home, and there was a sign there with a kingfisher, and there were kingfishers on this pond. Kingfishers, when they catch sunlight, look like they're catching fire. These are birds, and dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. This is what stones do. They make noise when you throw them into a well, he says, or a bell when the bow swings. Will make a noise, saying, I am a bell. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out what being indoors, each one dwells, selves goes itself. Myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me. I am who I am, for that I come, but I say more, Hopkins says. A just man justices, keeps grace that keeps all his goings, graces, acts in God's eye, who in God's eye he is. Well, who is he? Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in eyes, lovely in limbs, not his, to the Father through the features of our faces. God could change us. Years ago, I was in another city with a friend of mine. We were at a conference, staying at the same hotel. Got in the elevator. The elevator stopped. Guy gets in the elevator. You know, there's elevator etiquette. You don't stare at people, you know. So I'm just kind of looking down. We're all looking the same direction at the door. I'm kind of looking down. And I just notice this guy has really big feet, you know. Just, you notice like, wow, he's got big feet. You know, I'm looking down. And, you know, I start to look up and then the, the elevator bell rings and he's about to get off the elevator. And suddenly he looks very familiar to me. And I say, hey, aren't you? And he turns and says to me, Jones, The name is James Earl Jones. And before I can say anything else, the elevator doors close. And I'm thinking, man, Man. I was on the elevator with Mufasa. I was on the elevator with Darth Vader for like one floor, you know. You are my son, Luke. You know, I was there, I was thinking, man, the conversations we could have had about Roots and Alex Haley and all that, but no, no, I'm too busy looking at the floor to realize I'm in the elevator with James Earl Jones. It would have made a great story if we'd had a better conversation. Probably wouldn't have changed my life a whole lot. But someday, the elevator doors of history are going to close and the only thing that will matter is whether or not we knew Jesus Christ and to know Him is to love Him and to love Him is to listen to Him and to listen to Him is to learn and become like Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your presence among Your people as we worship You today. We confess, Lord, that we trivialize the holy. We, we play marbles with diamonds sometimes, Lord, and we don't even know. We don't even know that we're in the presence of the Holy One who can make us holy because, Lord, we've got our plans and our agendas and we're doing our thing. But, Lord, I pray that You would change us because we need to change And I pray, Lord, when we leave this place today, it would never again be business as usual. A yawn and a sigh. No, we have seen you, Lord. And we pray, Father, that we would become like you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.